Murder in the North, Episode 23, The DNA Breakthrough. It's a warm spring evening, Whitsun 1998. The rash Ibsens have just finished their dinner. Because she's had yet another argument with her father, Jörn, the family's younger daughter, a ten-year-old Susan, is keen to leave the house for a bit. Since her parents' divorce a few years ago, Susan and her father are often at loggerheads with each other, and now she's begging him to be allowed out in this lovely weather. The tower blocks in Bronbu-Strand Park, some 13 kilometers southwest of Copenhagen, get very hot in summer, despite the long shadows cast by each of the 16-story buildings. Susan walks barefoot across the hot concrete courtyard. The slender little girl has mid-length blonde hair and she's wearing a Spice Girls t-shirt paired with flowery shorts. In her hand, she has a few raffle tickets that she's hoping to sell in the neighborhood. They're actually her sisters, but Susan uses them as an excuse to get out of the house. It's eight o'clock in the evening. Susan is expected back at nine but she'll never return home. You're listening to Murder in the North, a podcast about some of the most shocking criminal cases in Scandinavia. Our account of these cases is based on sources in the public domain, including interviews, press releases, and court proceedings. Some narrative details were seen as irrelevant to the plot and therefore left out. This podcast series contains scenes of violence that some listeners may find distressing. You're listening to a true story, as researched by Jana Argard and told by me, Jenna Sharp. Nine o'clock comes and goes. Susan's father and her older sister start looking for her and call her name. It's not uncommon for the girl to come home late, but the more time passes, the more worried Ewan becomes. He phones his ex-wife, Susan's mother, his daughter's girlfriends, and finally the police. Later that Friday evening... The police launch a search that lasts all through the night and the next day. The whole area is combed through. Officers, dogs, helicopters and even divers are deployed to search the extensive nature reserve around Bronbu during the Whitsun weekend. Many locals pitch in too. Bronbrustrand Park is home to around 7,500 people. They live across 12 tower blocks, surrounded by beautiful nature, but most of them struggle to make ends meet, and the community faces a lot of social problems. It's here that the police need to find information about Susan's whereabouts. When someone is reported missing, and especially when the person is a child, the investigation always starts with the immediate family. The police soon get an idea of the rash Ibsen's troubles. They turn their attention to the divorce, and while talking to Susan's friends, they learn that the girl was very upset about the bad relationship with her dad. The father, meanwhile, shows the police officers around the area 
and indicates where he and his daughter looked for Susan. Days pass. Life in Brandrustran has been turned upside down. Flyers with Susan's image are handed out and the missing person notice is distributed widely. The police are told that on the evening she disappeared, Susan was thought to have been with another girl, but they're unable to ascertain the other girl's identity. They also look into the witness statements by a kiosk owner and a resident, who both claim to have seen Susan walking with her bike. While some residents are reluctant to talk to the police, there's one thing they all agree on. They must help Susan's family. And it's important to keep an extra close eye on the many children in the neighborhood who are used to moving around freely among the tower blocks to play in the various playgrounds. A few young men form a self-proclaimed vigilante group to protect Bronbrustrand's children and young women. The tower blocks, and in particular the many basements underneath the enormous concrete buildings, are repeatedly searched with specially trained tracker dogs. But with each passing day, hopes of finding Susan alive fade. A week after the girl's disappearance, on the 5th of June 1998, Susan's body is found in a locked basement storage unit, number 320 at 32 Tranum Parken in Bronbrustran, less than 100 metres from her family home. When a resident walks down the stairs, she's met with a very pungent, unpleasant smell. She calls the police, who cordon off the entire basement so forensic doctors and investigators can examine the crime scene. They conclude that the basement is just the location where the body was found, not where the girl was actually murdered. And not only that, the police searched this basement several days ago. So how could the perpetrator have left the body here in the meantime without being seen? Susan has been hidden under a stack of cardboard boxes, and there's a large padlock on the door. The autopsy that's done the next day reveals that Susan had been sexually abused. Traces of DNA are found on her body. As part of their search in and around the basement, the forensic investigators use luminol to detect potential drag marks that might lead them to a crime scene. Luminol is a chemical substance that forensic investigators will only use once they've concluded all other work at the crime scene. Before they spray the luminol, every single light source is covered or extinguished. Doors, windows, even the smallest cracks have to be taped over to make the room as dark as possible. Then all surfaces are sprayed with the luminol, and when the chemical solution reacts with blood or another bodily fluid, these traces will emit a blue-green glow. This phenomenon is also known as chemiluminescence. The reaction is strong enough to be photographed and gives investigators a very clear picture of any spatters or trace amounts of blood, sperm and saliva that may be present. If there is a lot of blood at the crime scene, the photos can look very dramatic, as the whole room will be illuminated. 
but at the location where Susan is found, only a few traces light up. In the storage unit itself, and on one of the doors leading from the basement into the stairwell. The traces are carefully secured, and the material is sent to the lab. People work on the case day and night. Three days later, on Monday morning, news comes in that the illuminated traces in the stairwell contain blood. Susan's blood, to be precise. And enough sperm was found on the body to obtain a DNA profile of the perpetrator. The inspector who heads the investigation team now considers calling up all male residents of Trannenparken for a DNA swab. On a voluntary basis, Inspector Willie Eliasson stresses. But of course, it's a very deliberate strategy. To the police staff, media and legal experts involved, it's pretty clear that voluntary really means that those who don't submit to a DNA test will automatically top the list of suspects. A lawyer dubs this approach the Gestapo method. Only one resident refuses to come forward. He lives on the ground floor of the building where Susan was found. He's immediately arrested, and a court order enables the police to collect a blood sample for a DNA test after all. The next day, the man is remanded in custody for two weeks, enough time for the investigators to establish whether his DNA is a match for that on Susan's body. The man in question is 50-year-old Lars Lee Leif Anborg Nielsen, a divorced father. He works locally delivering newspapers and doesn't have a criminal record. While Lars is in custody, Susan's funeral takes place. On Thursday, the 11th of June, 1998, at 12 o'clock sharp, church bells ring out across Bronbrustran. Everybody knows why. 600 residents from Trannenparken and Bronbrustran Park have made their way over to the church, where every single seat is taken. More people sit outside in the grass to say goodbye to Susan. After the service... Her coffin is taken to Bisbjerg Cemetery in Copenhagen, where it is interred. During various interviews that are conducted throughout June, the suspect maintains that he has nothing to do with either Susan's disappearance or her death. But as the results of the DNA tests come in one by one, it becomes increasingly difficult for him to keep denying any involvement. Lars comes closest to confessing when he says he can't remember what happened that night. He later retracts that statement again. It's a lengthy and complex investigation, and the police need until March 1999 to gather enough material before they can hand the case over to the Public Prosecution Service in Copenhagen. The case is then taken on by their most experienced prosecutor, Eric Merling, who brings charges a month later. The suspect is charged with murder, and because most of Susan's injuries were inflicted after her death, desecration of a corpse. To begin with, Lars has an experienced barrister named Hans-Henrik Gamborg by his side. Later, he's represented by top-class lawyer Thorkil Hewer, 
but in the end, he opts for Morton Wagner, a well-known lawyer from Viborg. Because of all these changes, the trial doesn't get underway until February 2000, nearly two years after Susan's murder. DNA plays a decisive role. This is the first case in Denmark that rests exclusively on biological and technical evidence. There are no witnesses, nor were any unambiguous traces of Susan found in Lars's flat. A total of 14 DNA samples make up the main body of evidence. During the first hearing at the court in Copenhagen, Lars makes a statement before the 12-member jury and the three judges. The prosecutor then sums up the DNA evidence and rails against the defendant. Do you really think you can be acquitted of any of the charges? Merling's question is a rhetorical one. The DNA evidence is overwhelming. Lars's sperm was found on Susan's body, while her blood was identified in the stairwell and on the ground floor of the tower block close to his flat. Likewise, traces of Susan's blood were found on Lars's trousers. Because these were microscopically small, the samples were analysed several times. Some were even sent to a lab in England, the Forensic Science Service in West Yorkshire, which specialises in DNA testing. In the years prior to the trial, there have been major innovations in genetic testing. The chances of a match have now greatly improved. The likelihood of someone with an identical DNA profile has been reduced from 1 in 2,000 to 1 in 100,000 people. The defence has called on Eric Nyboer, a professor in genetics, to check the DNA material for potential weaknesses. The defendant's lawyer believes there's reason to doubt the reliability of the DNA material. He also keeps stressing the poor relationship between Susan and her father. But there are no indications, let alone evidence, that either Susan's father or any other family member was involved in her death. During the trial, concerns about the creation of a DNA register are fiercely debated in the media. Could DNA evidence undermine the rule of law? A DNA database has already been established in the United States, and in response to Susan's murder, the Danish police's Forensic Science Center set up a special DNA unit in 1999. Back in court, it's now up to the prosecutor to provide sufficient evidence to prove Lars's guilt. His personal affairs come under scrutiny. He's a widower and the father of two daughters and a son who've already left home. He also has a 31-year-old girlfriend, but at the time of Susan's disappearance, she was travelling around South America. Lars is a Mormon and used to teach children about the Book of Mormon. He also worked for the Danish newspaper and magazine distributor, Blath Companiet, where he managed newspaper deliveries. Colleagues describe him as someone who often drank too much and who was well on his way to losing his job over a work dispute. Lars's childhood was marred by physical violence inflicted by his parents, and psychological evaluation reveals that it caused him to withdraw emotionally. He left school at the age of 13 
and his adult life consisted of a string of ever-changing jobs, too much alcohol, and an inability to build lasting relationships. The prosecutor shows photos of Lars's apartment in Tranemparken. The rooms are crammed full of cages for birds and other creatures, while newspapers and books are piled from floor to ceiling. The old and shabby furniture is covered in the hairs of cats, dogs, and a variety of rodents. There's a big chest freezer in the kitchen, and the prosecutor insinuates more than once that this is where Lars kept Susan's body until the opportunity arose to dump her. Susan's autopsy revealed that she was strangled shortly after her disappearance. And because the area, and in particular the basements, were repeatedly searched with dogs, her body must have been hidden somewhere else in the meantime. But no evidence was ever found in the freezer. It was squeaky clean. After eight days in session, the presiding judge instructs the members of the jury. According to the judges, there's no reason to doubt the credibility of the DNA material. The weight of evidence is comparable to that of a fingerprint. The key evidence, in their view, is Susan's blood on Lars's red trousers and Lars's sperm on Susan's body. The jury needs barely two hours to reach a verdict. Lars Lee Leif and Borg Nielsen, who is 52 at the time, is found guilty of both charges, murder and desecration of a corpse. The penalty for killing a child with a sexual motive was as high then as it is now, life in prison. Lars appeals the sentence, but in September of the same year, the High Court upholds the earlier decision. Susan's DNA and the DNA found on Lars's trousers are re-examined in 2001 by the Forensic Science Centre in Copenhagen. The result confirms that of the earlier tests. DNA analysis has proven its worth, a major milestone in history. The murder and sexual abuse of Susan and other children in the 1990s give rise to a great political debate in Denmark about the establishment of a DNA database. On the 31st of May 2000, a few months after the verdict, the Danish parliament, Folketinget, passes a new law that paves the way for a central DNA register. According to the law, DNA evidence now carries the same weight as a fingerprint. The law also makes it compulsory for anyone sentenced to a minimum of 18 months in prison or anyone convicted of possessing child pornography to submit DNA material. Their DNA profile is then stored in a central database. That same database also stores DNA samples from crime scenes, in some cases even evidence from unsolved cases from the past. Current figures show that the database now contains the DNA profiles of over 136,000 people, as well as 59,000 unidentified samples. The database is widely consulted, and every year an average of 8,000 new profiles are added to it. By now, Lars is probably a free man again. He was arrested in 1998 and sentenced to life two years later. A life sentence in Denmark is of indeterminate length, but prisoners can first apply for parole after serving 12 years. 
The parole board can reject such a request, but after 14 years in detention, applicants can take their case to court. Ultimately, the justice minister decides whether or not to grant a pardon. Chances are that Lars has been granted that pardon by now, but his DNA profile will remain in the database forever. From Podimo, this is Murder in the North. A new episode every week, wherever you get podcasts. And for early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>